Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. Happy New Year, Graceland Church family. I'm coming to you from Pennsylvania. My lovely oldest daughter, November, is filming me right now and trying not to laugh at me. We're having a great time seeing our family here. We're sad to be missing you this first Sunday of the new year, but you're in for a treat. My dear friend, Joy Qualls, is gonna be sharing a wonderful message with you to start the new year. She is a professor, she's an author, and a brilliant communicator. I want you guys to give her a huge hand as she comes to share. I love you guys very much, and I'll see you soon. Well, good morning, church. Can I say church? I'm a church girl. I just got to tell you, I grew up in the church. I love the church. The church has always been my safe place. Church is actually where I met your pastor, uh, Nathan, about 20 years ago. I will tattle on him a little bit. He was just a punk high school kid. Uh, when I went on staff at what would become my father-in-law's church, I love that church so much, I married the pastor's son. So um, my family is here in the front row. We get to be here today because our family lives here in Franklin as well. So um, my husband and two children and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law and two of their girls, we had to say goodbye to the oldest one this morning. It was kind of hard. Um, but I'm so glad that they're here. And my in-laws are actually online because they are watching from Mount Juliet this morning. And so we're so glad to have all of those who are online with us as well. Um, in my day job, I am a professor at Biola University in La Mirada, California. We're right on the line between Los Angeles and Orange County. Uh, I have a very fancy title. Uh, I am called a rhetorician. So what I'll tell you is that just means I study how we talk about things. And so my research emphasis is in that great love of mine. It's in the great love of the church. And so I study religious and political communication, and I study the intersections between those two. You'd be surprised at how close religious and political communication is to one another. Um, I also study gender in the church, and particularly women's leadership in the church, especially in our Pentecostal tradition. Uh, and so that's just a little bit of my background. Um, I, I tell you that in part because I spend a lot of time in data. I am looking at surveys that the Pew Forum and Barna and the Public Religion Research Institute does across the country. I, I focus particularly on the church in the United States because what's happening in the global church is just a little bit different than what's happening here um, in the U.S., and I'll be perfectly honest with you, as a church girl, that some of that data is not very encouraging. In fact, it can be pretty hard some days to go to work and to dig into the trends that we're seeing and know that my work is essentially professional Christianity and where perhaps even we are failing. And it's hard and it challenges me. And so I want you to know that everything I am saying to you this morning, I'm saying to myself, because this is the, the, the situation we're in and this is the call of God to us this morning. I don't come to you as some sort of authority. I come to you instead as a fellow church member who says, we gotta do some things a little different. So let's talk a little bit about that data. 
The good news is this, still about 71% of Americans identify as some sort of Christian. That's a label uh, we're still willing to use. Of that 70.6%, evangelical, self-identified evangelicals make up about 25.4%. The fastest growing religious identification in the United States is the identification of those who call themselves the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious identification. They're unwilling to commit to a label that attaches them with any sort of religious tradition. That 22.8% uh, of the nuns has risen exponentially over the last few years. It was about 6% five years ago. We're seeing this mostly among younger millennials and the Z generation, but we're also seeing an increased rise amongst baby boomers in that nuns area. That's hard to take in. But if you thought that news was rough, let's talk about those people who identify as Christians for just a minute. Amongst those who self-identify as Christians, regular church attendance is now considered once a month or less. Major attendance across all religious identification is a few times a year or less. In fact, the actual number of those who attend any sort of religious observance is less than one time a year. Biblical literacy is at an all-time low. Per the Barna Group, most self-identified Christians cannot name the four Gospels, recite at least five of the Ten Commandments, know who Paul or what an apostle is, or that he was one of those people. The numbers can be staggering, and they can be rather depressing. But what I see in those numbers is not just discouragement. What I see in those numbers, what I see in these trends is opportunity. Because of those nuns, there's an interesting data point within them. You see, they haven't completely rejected Jesus. The nuns identify that they want Jesus, but they just don't see him. And so I think the challenge for us today in the church is this. How do we come back from what might be considered a real failure of discipleship? But before you start thinking of a new program or laying the blame at pastors for more work that they need to do, you also need to know that pastoral burnout has risen 32% during the pandemic. Your pastors are working awful hard. So the challenge is not to just to church leadership or to people like me who work in this. The challenge is to all of us. What are we to do in order to become disciples and to make disciples? You see, your pastor is not the church. Your programs are not discipleship. We are the church. And if we are to be disciples, we need to begin this new year with a renewed commitment to becoming disciples and fulfilling the call to make disciples. If we are going to see revival, renewal, or reformation, it has to begin with a radical reordering of our lives. 
So I want to look at an example in the scriptures today. It's one you're probably familiar with. I'm going to be jumping around uh, a little bit in some of those gospels. We're going to start this morning in Luke chapter 10. Jesus and his disciples come to the home of a woman named Martha. And she has a sister named Mary. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to what he's teaching. Now, I want you to hold on to that for a minute because we're going to come back to that phrase, particularly the phrase about sitting at the feet of Jesus. So kind of hold on to that for just a minute. This act of Mary's actually makes Martha really angry. You see, Martha is exactly where she is supposed to be. Culturally, socially, religiously, Martha is doing all of the right things. Martha has been working to serve Jesus and her guests. Martha is frustrated by what is happening in her home. And so she doesn't go to her sister, by the way, to complain to her. She goes to Jesus. Isn't that what we do quite a bit? We just go complain to Jesus. And she says to Jesus, Mary is not where she is supposed to be. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, Oh, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but very few things are needed. In fact, only one. And Mary has chosen the better, and it will not be taken from her. You see, Jesus does not answer Martha's question. He just points out how stressed and anxious she is, and he reminds her that her sister is just fine. But there's something else going on here between Mary, Martha, and Jesus. There's a unique relationship between these two women and the Savior of the world. So I want us to quickly uh, put some context to all of this and get a little bit more understanding of the story. So let's move to John 11. This house that they're in is identified as Martha's house. There's a brother named Lazarus who is sick. We don't know what sort of sickness he has or, or why he is unwell. But the village is referenced as Mary and Martha's and that the home belongs to Martha. And eventually, Lazarus dies from this sickness. And he's buried on a cave in their land. So that tells us a little bit about something. It tells us that there's some sort of wealth. If they've got a cave on their land, there's, there's wealth there. Jesus eventually arrives at Bethany um, after taking longer than most of the people uh, there wanted him to. And there are other Jews from Jerusalem there as well, the scripture tells us. So there's also prominence if other Jews have come to mourn this loss. This narrative specifically highlights that these friends are friends of Jesus himself, but all of the ownership is attributed to these women, and that's significant and highly unusual. Once again, Jesus is confronted by Martha, that's sort of her way, and she is on the road to Bethany, which means this time Martha is not where she's supposed to be, because a woman whose family member has died in first century Judaism would be home in mourning, tucked away. But she meets Jesus, and she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you what you have at, whatever you ask. She trusts Jesus. But Jesus asks for Mary. And so Martha runs home, 
And she gets her sister and tells her that the teacher, Jesus, is asking for her. When Mary gets to Jesus, she repeats what her sister says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is deeply moved by these friends. He comes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, and there he weeps in his own grief. He promises the sisters that they will see the glory of God, and he does something over the protests of Martha. Jesus has the tomb opened, and he calls Lazarus forth, raising him from the dead. Well, if you had a family member raised from the dead, you'd probably have a party too. And so what we find next in John chapter 12 is that they're having a dinner, celebrating the life of Lazarus and honoring Jesus. Martha, it says, is serving. She's exactly where she's supposed to be. Lazarus is there too at the table with all of the other guests. And in comes Mary with a perfume bottle full of nard, a very expensive perfume said to be worth a year's wages. And she begins to anoint Jesus' feet and wash them with her hair to explain just how scandalous of an act this was would be inappropriate for a Sunday morning. And one of Jesus' disciples knows that. Judas, the disciple who would later betray Jesus, is outraged. He scolds Mary for her inappropriate behavior and claims that her actions are a waste and that perfume could have been sold in the money given to the poor. The irony here, of course, is that Jesus was, or Judas was the keeper of Jesus' purse, of the money that Jesus needed for his ministry, and he was known to once in a while skim some of that money off the top. So if anybody was wasting money, it was Judas. Once again, Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary. He goes after Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she use this perfume for my burial. You see, Mary has no problem offending Jesus' disciples, and Jesus defends her. He defends her to Martha, he defends her to Lazarus, and even to Judas. You see, those folks are all where they are supposed to be. But Mary? Mary's behavior is radical, and Jesus receives it. So let's go back to Mary and Martha in Luke's account. You see, oftentimes when this story is told, at least the way it was when I was coming up, is that Martha was working hard in the kitchen and Mary wanted to go to Bible study. And that was the conflict between them. But that's not actually what the scripture says. It says that Martha was busy with preparation and giving all we know about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, she was likely leading. She was likely overseeing household and staff and engaged in leadership and service activity exactly where she was supposed to be, while Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. There's that phrase again. To sit at the feet of Jesus or to sit at the feet of a rabbi, which is what Jesus was, was a particular expression in the rabbinic tradition that was full of meaning and understanding to the people at that time sitting at the feet. First, we need to understand something about Jesus. He was, in fact, a rabbi. He was itinerant. He traveled around. He had come, however, to announce a new kingdom. This is a, a profound statement loaded with all kinds of political, social, and religious implications. 
Jesus is also being hunted during this time. Jesus was hunted by one Herod at the start of his life, which we just recounted as we told the Christmas story. And once again, Jesus is being hunted by another Herod, this time Herod Antipas, who was a tetrarch, kind of a governor of the region. And he, too, was threatened by this person who called himself the king of the Jews, or who others referred to as the king of the Jews. And he wanted to kill Jesus. So yes, Jesus is a teacher who travels around, but he's also escaping danger every time he moves. Second, each rabbi had a particular way of interpreting the scriptures. They stressed different things from their own tradition. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, that's the activity that he's engaged in. That interpretation is called the rabbi's yoke. And when you choose to study with that particular rabbi, you take on their yoke. The student is joined to the the teacher and is joined with them in their work. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he is making allusions to this relationship. It's a vibrant, dynamic relationship between student and teacher that that helped the student understand how to view the world and our relationship to it. To follow a rabbi was to learn what the rabbi does. One only studied at the feet of a rabbi if that teacher believed you capable of becoming like him, to do what he does. You see, the goal of Jesus' teaching or the goal of a rabbi's teaching and Jesus in particular was not just to learn information. The goal was to learn what the rabbi does and to become like the rabbi so that you too can become a rabbi in your own right. The rabbi has authority and the rabbi gives authority. Again and again throughout the gospels, Jesus is teaching his disciples and empowering them with the authority to do what he does. So when we read that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, this is describing the rabbi-student relationship. She is becoming Jesus' disciple. She wants to join the revolution. And that's what's happening here. But let's go back to some context again. You see, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. You didn't sit at the feet of the rabbi unless you were being trained to become a rabbi. And women weren't teachers. In the words of the high women from their 2019 album of the same name, you see teaching just wasn't righteous for a girl. But Jesus, Jesus is fine with it. And he's so fine with it that when Martha confronts him about Mary not doing what she was supposed to do, he scolds Martha You see, Martha's not actually worried about who's doing the dishes and who's not. Martha is stressed and anxious because her sister is behaving in a way that was not open to them. This action and Jesus' response completely upends the social and religious order. Martha looks at Jesus and she says to him, this is not how it's done. And Jesus looks at her and responds, It is now, and it's not going to be taken from her. You see, Jesus has come to announce and inaugurate a new order. This is the central truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. 
He has come to bring about a fundamental reordering of structures that keep people from freedom, that leads them out of oppression. It's the rearranging of the world here and now. It is heaven as it is supposed to be and the world as it is now crashing together. I have come to help you arrange the whole thing, he says. Jesus challenges the notions of scarcity, of hierarchy, of violent oppressions, of sin and cultural structures, and he announces a kingdom of abundance, of opportunity, of nonviolence, where those who are the least are the ones who are elevated to the places of prominence. And he does this mostly through eating and healing. Go back and look at when Jesus speaks to sinners. You see, more often than not, he doesn't start with go and sin no more. He starts with come and dine. And then he tells them the truth. He invites them in first. If I'm honest with myself, more often than not, I look at sin even in my own life and I think you better get that cleaned up before you dare go sit at the feet of Jesus. But imagine if we just started with come and dine how that would change our world. You see, Jesus eats with whoever he wants, defying all of the norms. It's open subversion. Everyone is welcome at the feast, and it challenges the order of things. In Isaiah 43, we pick up in verse 16, and the prophet says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. I am doing a new thing. That new thing, that new order, that new kingdom, it is Jesus and he has come. When Jesus does this, he puts those with whom he shares the message in direct conflict. Direct conflict with their families, direct conflict with their tribes, direct conflict with their social structures. You see, there's something else about the culture at this time. It's incredibly ordered. It has very strict rules and processes. You see, there are structures for worship, structures for families, structures for the accumulation of wealth, Structures for the sick and structures for the, wealth, for the well. Who can move up? Who can move down? How things work and how they don't work? Again and again and again, Jesus announces a new way of arranging things. And this is in direct conflict with the old way of doing things. He puts his call to the kingdom in direct conflict with people and their families and their closest tribes and especially amongst the religious. How people navigated the world was challenged at every turn. Families, systems, who reports to who, who gets to make the rules, Jesus disrupts it all. He transcends it, and he's imminent in it, which means he's all around it, and he's all through it. He embodies all of this. If we are to become like Jesus, we need to listen to the Spirit and follow where it leads. But when we walk this path, those closest to you may not be interested in walking the path with you. See, some people are going to get it and some people are not. In fact, some may find it to be the ultimate offense. You see, when you encounter the new world of Jesus, your world is dismantled. What is known as safe, it's not safe anymore, and the guarantees often go away. Jesus insists that this whole new world is possible, that he has come to rescue and release people from these systems, the ones we make for ourselves and the ones that others make for us, the things that hinder us from becoming all that God designed us to become and the purpose for which he created. 
Jesus keeps speaking of a new kind of kingdom where hierarchies and human order are turned on its head. Jesus comes to liberate people from any arrangement that inhibits our full flourishing. So this Mary, this woman, sitting at the feet of Jesus, she defies all of the cultural and religious structures of what women can and cannot do. What Mary knows is that sitting at the feet of Jesus is a decidedly disruptive act with social, familial, cultural, and perhaps even political implications. She knows exactly what she's doing, and Jesus loves it. He asks for her. He seeks her out. Her strength and determination are not a threat. In fact, they are a great joy. He defends her to her sister and later Judas. This is exactly what he came to do. He came to lead people into the fullness of life. Jesus came to lead people into the fullness of life, and Mary feels it. She knows it. She knows this is what she was made for, and it will not be taken from her. She has the courage and the boldness to walk in it. Few things are needed. In fact, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. She seeks for the kingdom, and everything else gets added to her. Mary has chosen a good thing. Let's get back to Martha for a second. I relate a whole lot more to Martha, if I'm truly honest, than I ever have to Mary. See, Martha's no wilting flower, and she's exactly where she's supposed to be. And yet, she's also not. She's a woman leading a household. It's her house. It's spoken of as her village. She's become influential in her own right. She's caring for a brother who, for some reason, is not the leader of their family, which is the way it was supposed to be. She's wealthy. She's influential. They're a prominent family, and she's named as the representative of that family. And here's the thing. While Jesus corrects her, he does not dismiss her. Jesus loves Martha, and he honors her commitment. But there's just so much more. If we're going to live a life of discipleship and in turn make disciples, we just can't simply be where we're supposed to be. Mary was also where she was supposed to be, and that's the whole thing. We must be in the place where we are closer to, closest to Jesus and learning to become more like him, whatever heat or criticism we take. You see, this is what comes with it. When we follow the path that has been laid out for us by Jesus, we can expect people not to get it. We can expect that people will have a lot to say, and we can expect hardship and challenge. And when we do, we will be in the game. We will be disrupting everything around us. Difficulty, trial, all the blood, sweat, and tears, this is what comes with it. Mary doesn't apologize. She doesn't act in a defensive way. What we get from her is resolve and calm. She is doing something unbelievably, unbelievably un, sorry, words are hard, unbelievably radical. To sit at his feet, to pour out perfume, to come and meet Jesus when she should be home in mourning, over and over again, she behaves in a way that is counter to everything she should be doing, but she just does it. 
You see, today, friends, I believe as we enter into this new year that this is a time of reckoning. Today is a day of reckoning for you and I who love and claim the church, who have been where we are supposed to be. God has given us this time for us to come together and hear from him about this place that we have been. And he's challenging us that we can, in fact, choose a better thing. We are called to be disciples of Jesus, disruptors to the order of our time and place. While the statistics and the narratives can seem discouraging, I think we're on the precipice of a great change and shift in our generation. I believe that all of the turmoil, all of the struggle, all of the hardship is setting us up for the next great move of God. There is great opportunity and we have the opportunity to choose the better way. You see, for far too long, we have chosen to be people who know who Jesus is but we have failed to become like him. But Jesus, he just keeps speaking. He just keeps inviting us into a new path, a new order of things, a new kingdom where the table is set and everyone is welcome, where neighbor love is so radical that even our enemies are included and they get the best seats. And he keeps insisting that you and I can walk this out. Mary knows that there is nowhere she would rather be than right here. And if the entire dominant patriarchal first century world says that women don't sit at the feet of rabbis, well, Mary, she knows that the answer to that is yes. Yes, they do. Of course they do. And so my challenge for us today is this. As we begin this new year, will we choose the way of Mary by choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus? Will we desire to become more like him? Will we get away to quiet places when we need to hear from the Father? Will we touch the people that nobody in our culture and society will touch? Will we invite the notorious sinners to our table and before we ever tell them to go and sin no more, we will say, come and dine. We will speak truth, and we will speak it powerfully and boldly, and we will take the hits. Jesus died for these things, and we are called to die as well. But if we will sit at the feet of Jesus and become more like him, he will move among us in ways we have not seen in generations. So we can do what he does. We can announce good news to the poor, a new ordering of the world, a Pentecostal world where the least lead in unexpected places and where we all get to sit at the feet of the rabbi, regardless of what it costs. Let me pray for you. Father God, I just ask you today for the people of Graceland Church, for the mission that they have been called to, Father God, I just ask that you would illuminate this place and the people of this community. God, that people all around Franklin and Nashville and greater Tennessee would look around and they would say, what on earth is happening in that place? 
I want to be a part of that. I want to go check that out. I want to go see those people. Let it just be a place where there is darkness, but light is shining through, God. We just ask that you would anoint Nathan and his family as they lead this community, God. And Father, I just ask that you would invite all of us once again to come and sit at your feet. Lord, there's just no place else I'd rather be. No matter the cost. And I want to see you move. So come move amongst us again, Lord Jesus. This is exactly where we're supposed to be. so much joy let's give it up for joy wasn't that phenomenal word thank you so much it was that was so good i got to hear it twice and it was it was so good both times so good um and we we're thankful for for you and we're so privileged that you were uh were to say yes to be here with us today thank you so much um i want to invite you to respond to today's word um i want you to invite you to to tell the lord hey lord i need you i want to be more like you this 2022 i want to be close to your feet i want to sit at your feet this 2022 that that is our prayer this first sunday of the year that we could say jesus let me sit at your feet so we can become more like you. So the band is going to lead us in a song, and I just invite you to respond right there where you're at. You can stand on your feet. You can come um, up to the altar, whatever you like. Um, the, the, the band will lead us. Lord, this 2022, we want to sit at your feet, Lord. I want to sit at your feet, Lord. Lord, allow us moments of intimacy with you that we seek you, Lord, this 2022 that that is our first desire, our most greatest desire is to seek you first, to sit at your feet, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for being different, for doing things different, Lord, that we can also be like you and we can tell people, come and dine, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Allow, give us doors of opportunity, Lord, to share your goodness. We glorify you. Let me pray this benediction over you. Make sure uh, once we're dismissed, you say hi to someone you don't, um, you haven't met yet. I'll pray this benediction and we'll be dismissed. May the God who gave us this year and the Savior who walked at our side each day and the Spirit who filled us with love abundant grace the coming year with peace and hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.